Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Friday, January 13th. Netflix has had such a profound impact, not only on how we watch television, but what we watch on television. In the process, the company's gone through a ton of change itself since it first started transitioning from DVDs by mail to streaming video more than a decade ago. I've covered Netflix since those early days, and I remember when they sent me media screeners on DVD for Lillehammer, their first original series, because they just assumed none of us had Netflix yet. Then Netflix went through its HBO phase where it was trying to buy whatever A-list projects it could and spend whatever it had to to compete with the cable networks for the very best shows, stuff that would win Emmys and get the industry excited about Netflix. It had an executive, Cindy Holland, who was known for her taste in building relationships. Shows like Orange is the New Black, The Crown, Stranger Things, Queen's Gambit. But then towards the end of the decade, Netflix was all of a sudden huge, a global player. And with the U.S. market pretty saturated, Netflix was becoming much more focused on international growth. They pivoted. Cindy Holland was out, and she was replaced by Bella Bajaria, the current global head of television. She's a London-born daughter of Indian parents from East Africa who grew up in Southern California and was a beauty queen before she started at CBS, then went to NBC, made a name for herself buying big popular shows for the network there and the studio. She's a much more commercial executive. She's perfect for Netflix as it tries to be less HBO and more anything and everything that is on television anywhere in this country and the world. That's pretty much the mandate and the strategy for the past few years. Volume play. It's produced some of the biggest hits in the history of Netflix. Squid Game, Wednesday, Love is Blind, other reality shows. What Bajaria herself calls, quote, gourmet cheeseburgers, end quote. It's also produced a lot of criticism in Hollywood. People saying Netflix doesn't care about quality anymore. It's a volume play now, governed by algorithm, lowest common denominator stuff. I'm not sure what side I'm on there. I think they do a little bit of both. But this past week, The New Yorker published a fascinating profile of Bajaria that followed her around the world for many months, from private planes to meetings in Mexico City to Europe and beyond. It's one of those pieces that makes other journalists jealous because the level of access here is pretty incredible. So I wanted to have the author, Rachel Syme, on the show for a Netflix check-in and what she learned going around the world with the top TV executive at Netflix and seeing how all those gourmet cheeseburgers are made. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rachel Syme, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and wrote the excellent 
piece on Bella Bajaria called Everything Everywhere that published this past week. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on today to talk about the piece because I found it fascinating and interesting. And it's interesting to me because there's a long tradition in Hollywood of executives getting the kind of national magazine treatment where they submit themselves to full access and let someone follow them around for months at a time uh, with the hope that the piece will turn out positive on them or that they will raise their profile. But you see less and less of this in Hollywood people these days. And I think the internet has a lot to do with that. You know, you go back and read some of these pieces from like Vanity Fair and Premiere from like 20, 30 years ago. And you're like, oh my God, they said that in a magazine? That just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, But you got full access here. You you went literally around the world with with Bella Bajaria. So uh, tell me, first of all, how that happened. Did you just approach her and she said yes? So I know around the time of Squid Game coming out, which I guess is now feels like ancient history, but it was 2021. Right. Um, we had wanted to find out sort of who is responsible for the global strategy, just because that was such a big international hit that was out of left field and everybody was uh, flocking to Netflix to watch this thing. So we wanted to know sort of the, the person that, oversaw that strategy. So we I think we made the initial ask back then. And then I think because of the pandemic, the piece was sort of on a little bit of a negotiation slash hold because she wasn't really traveling. And they told me like, oh, just really see her in her element. You have to travel with her. And then what's interesting is I think they said yes to this piece. I think maybe um, our editor-in-chief, David, had asked Netflix if we could do this. And they had said yes. And I think they had said yes before that quarterly report. That was a That bit. was what I was going to ask. Because the <laughs> narrative on Netflix absolutely changed during mm-hmm. this year. And I was betting that they probably thought this was a good idea before they started losing subscribers in the spring. And they kind of had a, a couple oh shit moments. Well, sure, but they could have pulled out at any time. And I was actually quite interested in the fact that they didn't. But um, I've seen, I mean, I actually do not know the motivation behind saying yes to this and giving me so much access. I have a feeling it might have been about about those numbers, you know, like because I started reporting it after that had come out. And they were on, as I say, in the piece, a little bit of a press back foot. And I think maybe they thought we need to reclaim the narrative or we need to let people know that we have a long-term strategy uh, that in, that this is just a blip or, or something like that. I have no idea what their thinking was because when I first started traveling with her um, all the headlines were not great. And I was like, why are you letting me do this? Right. Well, Bella has done personal press in the past. I'm sure you have a whole file. She's she's incredibly open. I mean, to her credit, she never once bulked at access I asked for. I had lots of Zooms with her. Um, you know, whenever I needed to, she clarified things. I had her email address. Like, you know, it was not the kind of... Um, Netflix was involved in the reporting of the piece in so much as any corporation is when you report on a big company where there's a corporate publicist and you're dealing with them and they're the go-between and all this stuff. And there were conditions upon reporting the story and all these things. But Bella was very open and very naturalistic, very, very, very generous of her time. It wasn't like there was a lot of smoke and mirrors or obfuscations being thrown up in the path to her, which I thought was really to her credit. She was, she was game. She was really game. 
All right, so let's get into the piece a little bit because I have heard a number of reactions this week from people. And by the way, they had a they had a great discussion of the piece on The Watch, another Ringer yeah. podcast with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. So if you're interested in that, they have a, they're much more uh, intellectual about this stuff than I am. But they had a the the, the piece is kind of it, it's given two reactions from people. One is. Oh my God, you know, this is where the business is today. Really, this woman is flying around the world looking at the slates that are being made and being like, oh, that seems to be working. What can we do that in another country? Or what's our volume like? You know, we need more right. of this. We need more of this. And she doesn't, in the piece at least, she doesn't seem to come across as someone who, let me say this nicely, is is going to put her taste at the top of a resume. It's much more about serving the base needs of this massive subscriber base that they have around the world right. for better and worse. And that is a shift both at Netflix from what they did in the early days where they were literally trying to be HBO and have the best shows with the best talent that would work with Netflix. And I think it's a change from the history of the television business, which very much has been a business that celebrated people with like the golden gut. You know, I have a vision for what CBS should be. I have a vision for what FX should be. And these are my shows, and you will like or not like my shows. She doesn't approach this remotely like that. And that's controversial, I think, for people in the business. I think that it goes along hand in hand with the fact that Netflix is really a tech company and that in a lot of ways they have to think through the tech and around the tech and about the data and when they program things. I mean, she was very keen to tell me that we don't use the data to program individual moments of content. We're not finding out that everybody loves an explosion seven minutes into a show. So we tell everybody to make an explosion seven minutes into the show. But they do look very seriously at the numbers and that helps them figure out what they're going to do. And so if, in this strange way, a creative executive kind of has to think like a computer or at least understand that um, you know whatever's happening with audience data is really important for what you pick. And that golden gut idea is really no longer germane. I mean, I think that that's what's interesting is that I kept asking them about taste, right? Because I'm a critic. I, I come from that background. Um, I write for the New Yorker. I mean, right. like, you know, I come from that kind of sensibility. So I kept asking them. And it wasn't like they were saying this question is controversial or I can't think of an answer. It's that they kept telling me that that was a question that was a little bit beside the point. I mean, Bella kept saying, like, my taste, my personal taste doesn't matter. I would, I, I have taste. She was like, I, I like certain shows and other shows I don't like. I mean, she, at one point in the piece, she does say, I like all TV. Yeah, this is her quote. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a fan of TV. I work in TV. I watch everybody's things. People have very different tastes, and I have no disdain for whatever those things are. What is quality? What is good versus not? That's all subjective. I just want to super serve the audience. Yeah, that that quote has been pulled out quite a bit. Um, and I think what she was trying to say there was that her taste would not be relevant to what her job is, um, which is, as you said, contrary to this idea of the golden gut, which is something that Ted Sarandos brought up to me, which is that we just don't do that anymore. You, you would get, quote unquote, as he said, bottlenecked behind one sensibility if you had somebody at the very top whose taste was guiding the entire ship, which is, by the way, a huge ship right now. I mean, yeah. as they've scaled up, it's all about scale. You cannot have taste at scale in this strange way. It just doesn't work that way. Which is, to, but you can have a decentralized system where you have what what they would argue at Netflix is they have a decentralized system where there's a million little executives that have their own proclivities and their own taste, and that they're all trying to commission based on those things. But then 
it's sort of if the audience data doesn't bear out that that works, they won't do that kind of thing again. So it's just yeah, kind the of, data filters it out. It's almost yeah, like they yeah. they will self-select out of the ecosystem if the audience doesn't respond to what they are doing. Right, and I, I and I think they would tell you we're trying to make good shows. I mean, I don't think that they are agnostic about quality, but I do think that taste is this very strange speed bump that they get caught up on where they're like, that would slow us down. And it's not really relevant. It's not relevant to how we program because it would, if, if one person's taste mattered, that would kind of clog up the entire operation, let alone the person at the top who's supposed to be kind of like seeing all these, he calls cross-cultural learnings or kind of like spindles of ideas and connective web between all the different countries and the departments. If she had a specific thing she was looking for, um, it might gum up the works. And the thing is, I think that is kind of depressing for certain mm. types of creators. And there's some that don't care. They're like, give me the money. I'm going to make my show. And it's actually better that you don't have a perspective on it. And I'm happy to be judged by the data and let me do it until it doesn't resonate anymore. There's some people that are like that. There are others. Yeah, though, though she's, though, sorry to interrupt you. She's yeah, very loyal. I mean, it might be depressing to creators. And I know that there, that has been kind of some of the discourse around this piece. But then... Mm -hmm. There are other creators who have these giant overall deals who she's incredibly loyal to, to the point where she was giving me full-throated uh, defense of Ryan Murphy, for example, when I brought up the fact that, that critics didn't really love Dahmer um, full-heartedly. There were some that did, some that didn't. It was very mixed. And she was like, we liked it. We stand by it. We're going to do two more seasons of Monster. Yeah, because it's huge. It, I mean, it had a huge audience. And she's telling me it's great. So then the question is, is it is it something she truly loves or is it because it did well? Is it like a reverse meritocracy? I don't really know. I, that I was think what I she loves really it <laughs> because it did well. She's not talking about the three Ryan Murphy things that failed last year. She's not talking about Hollywood or the prom or the things that Ryan Murphy did when he first went over to Netflix that did not get an audience. She's talking about the hits. I mean, right. and it's not like she's alone. You know, there's a, a long history in the television business of glomming on to hits and wrapping your arms around them as executives, even if you may not have been initially that supportive of them, but uh, I'm not saying she wasn't. You know, Queen's Gambit is a really interesting case study because they're, uh, you know, I couldn't, they were very, I'd say, reticent to talk about whether or not there was any initial question about whether or not that should have been commissioned, which I guess the gossip trades had said at some point there was some. Oh, I've heard that many times. Bella didn't understand it. Why are we doing this? That kind sure. of Sure. And she yeah. said, I had nothing to do with Queen's Gambit. I saw it at the same time as everybody else. And I thought it was amazing. That's what she told me. But I do think that there was a question that people had about like, oh, is that the direction we're going in? And everyone thought it might have been small. And why are we doing this chess show? And then it was a huge hit. And then they full, full throatedly stood behind it. And they were like, we're the Queen's Gambit Network. But I think that, like you said, that has a deep history in TV. It's like Seinfeld didn't do great its first season. And, you know, Larry David has talked about it all the time. They were going to cancel it and that it was considered a folly. And then now it's one of the most beloved properties NBC has. And they're, you But know, that was a choice. Seinfeld mm. was kept on the air via a choice by executives at NBC who saw something there and went against the numbers. If the first season of Seinfeld did those numbers on Netflix, it would be gone these days. Well, and I, and I think that's what's hard with the current streaming 
ruthlessness towards cancellations because I think that that there's not a lot of shows that are given a chance to grow. And that was one thing that we talked about in the piece a little bit, which is that there's this 28 day metric that they have, which is just 28 days on service from the time it debuts internationally to find its footing, find its audience. If it finds a huge audience in those first 28 days, it'll likely get a renewal if it finds a respectable but not huge audience, it'll do something at Netflix and to rest of TV calls going on the bubble where they decide what it's going to be. And then somebody has to fight for it. And it becomes this sort of like, do we have anything else like it? Does it fill a niche? Does it keep a, a certain audience we're chasing engaged and that kind of thing? And then if it's not doing well, there's a high likelihood it won't go on. I mean, something like 1899 is an interesting example because... That was a really expensive show. I mean, they shot it in the volume, which is that giant 360 thing. They shot like the Mandalorian and that can show crazy 3D graphics from anywhere in the world. It was the creators of Dark, which was a huge international success for Netflix. It clearly wanted a second and a third season when the creators announced that it was going to be canceled. They did it on Instagram and said with a heavy heart, we had hoped it would have a second and third season. We had planned it out. Like basically they they had come up with an arc that will never be told. And that show didn't do what it was supposed to do. I'm not sure what it was supposed to do. I think it was supposed to be a giant international hit given how it was engineered. Well, and that's the frustration for creators is that they don't know what it was supposed to do. And this comes up in your piece a lot where you have someone like Mike Schur, who is one of the most celebrated creators in comedy. He is like, yeah, the sands keep moving. They don't really tell us what they want, what you know the expectations are, and it's just like this black box. Now, they do give more numbers now than they used to, and they put out these top tens every week, but I yeah. still talk to creators who are like, eh, we'll see. And the expectation now is that your show is going to get canceled after two, three seasons, even if it does okay, because they just don't see the value in keeping shows around longer than that, with very few exceptions. I didn't report on this, but think about how uh, the numbers change also when you keep it on for a long time. I mean, you did a report on this, I think, on the renegotiation of the Stranger Things contracts. Yeah, yeah. And that they're they're huge now because that show. But is that's in- the exception. That is sure. undeniable. You cannot. They could. They have to have Stranger Things, and you know that that's where they they get. They, Netflix doesn't care when I report on salaries for Stranger Things because that's good for them. It makes people think that oh, I can have a five-year show on Netflix and I can get paid you know, $9 million a season to do eight episodes of TV. Great. But that is so rare. And most of the shows now are one, two, and out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really difficult. And I think that there's an idea that from some of the creators that I spoke to that it's a complete, yeah, opaque system. Even now, that even as you said, they're giving people more data than they used to. And I think certain of their their big overall deals get a lot of data because they, you know, they have a sort of privileged position. But I think in general, people are just confused. But I think this is going across the streaming spectrum. I mean, HBO Max shows are getting pulled before they're even on the air. There's True. there's all there's there's so many things going on with streaming right now because of what you had said about a market correction and everybody is scared and the recession is looming and you know people are spending less, even though Netflix will still spend $17 billion on content globally this year. Um, there is a sense, I think, of uh, mass confusion from everybody that I talk to in the industry. Yeah. And by the way, I should mention, I'm actually, I'm quoted in this piece. Thank you for Oh, yeah. That Sorry. Yeah, we, we should disclose. Yes, I <laughs> yeah. did speak to you about, <laughs> like, uh, about this market correction, about the, yes. the idea that this recession might change streaming spend. 
Yeah, and the thing about Netflix is that still, despite all of the criticism about the direction of the content, you know when you make a show for Netflix, it can find an audience. They have the biggest party in town, and there's 227 million or whatever it is now worldwide subscribers where these hits like Wednesday or Dahmer or Bridgerton, these big, big, massive hits, those are shows that may have languished on another streaming service. You know, and and I think we're going to see another example where Netflix often will now take shows that are failures elsewhere and make them hits. And Bella was a big architect of this at Netflix with things like You, which was on Lifetime, or Manifest. Right, and are you talking about Girls NBC. 5 Eva? Girls 5 Eva is going to be another example. It's funny because when I talked to Tina for the piece, who's a person who's worked, with, yeah, who's worked with Bella for a long time, and the reason that Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt ended up on Netflix was Bella's architecture. Um, the, the When I was talking to her, she was like, I'm in the middle of Bella potentially saving me again, but I can't tell you what it is. And clearly it was Girls 5 Eva uh, taking it from Peacock. And I'm sure it will be huge on Netflix. I mean, to her credit, that is something that she is incredibly good at is this, this idea of resurrecting a show or finding a new life for it, either in terms of a co-production, which is this model that she kind of, you know, wasn't something that, that didn't exist in TV before, but she really pushed it hard at Netflix mm-hmm. where they would come in early on the financing of a project and be in, be able to sort of like wrangle it into a Netflix original. It was almost like this fiat thing. Like with you, it started at lifetime. They co-proed it for a while. And then ultimately just kind of like, took it over to Netflix as a full Netflix production where it's been incredibly successful. And it was kind of, yeah, languishing on Lifetime. I mean, who was going to find it up there, you know? And that's a perfect show for Netflix. I mean, it's a gourmet cheeseburger, I would say. Definitely gourmet cheeseburger. So you got a lot of access here to Netflix meetings. You're flying around the world. There's the infamous now scene where you're on the the private jet with her. And she's very upset because they don't have any Chardonnay. No, no, no. She's very... She's very upset because she doesn't Sauvignon want. Blanc. They don't have Sauvignon Blanc, and she says, "If you write this part, you have to say that I drank the Sauvignon Blanc because it cannot be my reputation that I drank Chardonnay." Uh, True story. Very, very important. Um, I know you leave. This was the one time you were alone without the publicist. You mentioned, which is hilarious. Also, this episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What did you learn about the Netflix culture from attending oh meetings gosh. and going all over the world? People don't realize in this country how big the Netflix infrastructure is around the world and all of Huge. the different offices. And it's, it's kind of amazing. We, we had to, you know, the piece had to lose some darlings because it's for length, but there was a, mm-hmm. there was a sort of a reverie on Netflix offices around the world at a certain point where they all kind of look like the same office, except for they have little cultural flourishes. So it's like, it's almost like a WeWork where it's like plug and play, except 
there's like something that makes it culturally specific. So like in Mexico, first of all, all the snacks are local snacks that are like, you know, curated to be like, we have chicharron pinwheels and de la Rosa Mancipan. And like in the Mexico, and we have a giant mural that's this like painted like a street art with luchador masks and a taco truck and all these things that makes it look kind of like it's a Mexican street art scene. But then there's still the giant glowing N everywhere as well. And the sort of red surfaces, glossy red Netflix throw pillows that has like, you know, every kind of Netflix branding. And then, in, and then my favorite thing that didn't make it in the piece was that in the main office, they have a coffee bar when you first walk in and the coffees are specially blended and branded to be Netflix coffee. And the coffee blend in house is called skip intro. That's hilarious. It's such a, (laughs) no, I'm telling you, it's such a funny culture that like it is. And, and just the way they speak, I mean, they have this crazy lingo. I know that's that Sean Levy at one point talked about taste clusters and how they have a kind of in-house patois, but there is, a, a thing when they start meetings, they, you know, they have a little small talk and then they go into something called learnings, which is usually, you know, they asked, does anyone have any learnings? And they did this at pretty much every meeting that I went to. And it, and it, you know, it's about things that worked and didn't work. Mostly it's about shows that didn't work and they bring them up and they really like aggressively talk about them in the spirit of radical candor where like the, the executive who was in charge for a show that totally flopped, like has to explain it to the big boss, which feels stressful to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's all sorts of weird Netflix. Did you witness any sunshining, any uh, any confessions of people's problems or failures personally? Uh, no, no sunshining. Um, but yeah, I did see a lot of like, uh, you know, when they when they talk in a group, sometimes they say we need to socialize that. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, there's there's all this lingo about how how it works, and it's very. I mean, it's very casual. There's a casual culture. And it's interesting because they've tried to bring that all over the world. But Bella and I talked a lot about how the Netflix culture in LA, which is incredibly kind of like off the cuff, everybody's laughing, everybody's bringing up things that didn't work and and pretty open about it. Um, And I I sat in on several meetings there. So that was the vibe. Doesn't totally translate necessarily to other countries. So like she was telling me, like when you're in the Japanese office, it's much more formal. Um, You know, there's there's a little bit of a, the Netflix culture doesn't totally translate. So that's what's been, and to try to import that and push people to be like, you can be open about feedback. You can you can, you know, it's an, it's funny to think about it in 26 different countries, how you would yeah. bring the company's so big now that yeah. it's really tough. I think for them to maintain some of these things. I mean, we just saw recently they're walking back a little bit, this whole thing where everyone has access to salary information mm. where they have, there was a piece in the journal, I believe talking about how they're getting rid of that. Because the company is so big now that they don't want everyone to know what everyone else is making and it's caused problems. And it's like, well, welcome to corporate America. That's yeah. like r- the reason why people don't have access to that. It's a giant corporation at this point. I mean, it's globally, I was so taken with the scope. I mean, it's just growing, 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 growing. And the scale is so large. And my real question was, how can one person hold this all in their head? I mean, at one time, like, how do, how do you be everything everywhere always at once? You know, that was my big question going so into this. Did, because, you feel, did you feel like that question was answered in your reporting? I think what I took away from it was that they have decentralized their system to the point where one person cannot really keep it in their head at all times. They kind of have something. Bella's job really is a job of synthesis. 
she goes around and she hears things, she she absorbs things coming in from all the different countries and then tries to see connections and pathways between and say like, oh, like France should make a telenovela or Egypt should, or you should make ultimatum, marry or move on, but make it in South Africa. But don't, you know, it, and it was funny because I think something that, oh, she was like, ultimatum, marry or move on, we work in South Africa, but we shouldn't make it in India because they don't have a problem with commitment. Um, That's funny. But generally, it's not one person's taste or vision that's guiding the thing. It's it's a bunch of little, you know, country hubs, fiefdoms, and then, you know, they're all kind of serving the one big thing back in Hollywood. But the idea would be not to get bottlenecked by having to run everything through California at this point. Everybody has green light ability in their own countries. Right. You described her as a universal power converter, plugging in and adapting successful show formats to different parts Mm -hmm. of the world. And the question is whether long term that is good or bad for the quality of the content and whether it serves its audience. And the great thing about Netflix is we will see. They have a quarterly report card on whether subscribers go up or down, whether they're willing to pay more when they raise their prices, whether they are going to downsize to an advertising tier. They don't find as much value there. And we can see it play out in real time. But all right. Rachel Syme, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate your insights. Fascinating piece. If you haven't read it, go to newyorker.com and search Bella Bajaria and Netflix. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, big weekend at the box office. A lot of, for the first time in a while, I feel like there are multiple movies coming out on the same weekend for the MLK weekend. You excited? I'm excited for Plane. (laughs) <laughs> Bill, Sean, and Chris and I have been have been texting about it. Oh, I love this movie. God bless Jerry Butler. He's <laughs> he's just always reliable. For he's the, the only one still making a good, reliable action movie. You know. Yeah, and just turn your brain off. You know, it's hilarious because you know they were sitting around some conference room like, oh, what's what are we going to call this thing? Like, what we can't just call it plane. Like, I'm sure that was a logline or some filler title. It's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just call it plane. Yeah, why not? You know, let's just lean into it. Plain in all caps. It's so lazy. It's so lazy. I didn't know people called him Jerry. Oh, everybody calls him Jerry. Gerard, really? I thought he went by Gerard Butler. I mean, professionally, he does. But who calls Leo DiCaprio Leonardo? Do you think, like, maybe his mom? Okay. Uh, Listen, I'm not in the same circles as you. I I don't often rub shoulders with Jerry Butler. I'm not hanging with Jerry Butler either, but I do know enough to know that everybody calls him Jerry. All right. Uh, all right. My prediction. So the, these movies are all, there's three movies opening or expanding wide. There's a Tom Hanks movie called A Man Called Otto, mm-hmm. which uh, has been kind of platforming out. It's going wider this weekend. There is the House Party remake that LeBron is producing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you are, I imagine you are not familiar with the House Party franchise. I would say I probably didn't know it existed until this new movie came out. No, the original came out in 1994, so I do not expect you to know. It was a kid-and-play movie. Um, But they did a remake. Warners is giving it a moderate release in theaters. It's one of those HBO Max movies that they upgraded Mm. to put in theaters. Not expected to do much. The over-under on these movies is all about $10 I'm taking the under for Man Called Otto and House Party. I'm going to take the over for Plane. Never doubt Jerry Butler. There is an audience for this that Ringer Staffers is the audience for this movie. I, I'm just trying to think of other titles that they could have gone with. They could have picked anything. 
His name is Brody Torrance. You could have just called the movie Torrance. Torrance. Yeah. Torrance is down. Make it part of the White House is down franchise. <laughs> uh, you're taking the over, though. Uh, all yeah. right. I, not much over, but I do think it'll get over for the for the long weekend. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. I want to thank my guest, Rachel Syme. And I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. 